But we, we could be, well, I don't think we'll be where the battle happens, but we're definitely going to be where probably God's pouring out the bowls, either right at the end of the year or right at the start. So pretty crazy stuff. So let's stand and let's read from Revelation chapter 11, but let's backtrack one verse to 14 from last week. Because there's a pattern here, and I want, I want you to see this. Revelation eleven fourteen. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And this is the pattern. And then all of a sudden, there's a trumpet that sounds. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world have become, that's our key word there, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders who have been holding it in for all of eternity. They fall on their faces and they worship God. And they have these incredible words here. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives this morning. And so, Lord, may we truly have, Lord, ears, not only ears to hear, Lord, what your Holy Spirit wants to speak to us this morning, but may we have hearts that are of good soil that can receive your word. Lord, that a hundredfold might be produced in our lives. So Lord, help us, the, dis- the cares, the distractions, the- Lord, any that are just walking in disobedience, Lord, that we'd, re- we'd get all that out of our life right now. Lord, because we want to hear from you, Lord, we would cast it all to you and that we would ha- allow our hearts to be out of the good soil, Lord, where your living word is going to take root deep within and produce fruit in e- each one of our lives. So, Lord, please bless our time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So there's been this pattern that's been developing. Four angels have sounded their trumpet. If you look back in the first 12 verses of chapter 8, four angels sound their trumpets. Death and destruction are everywhere. And then for the first time in verse 13 of chapter 8, John heard a woe. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And then right after that, trumpet angel number five sounded. Remember we saw the demonic locust coming up out of the bottomless pit. And now here in chapter 9 verse 12, John heard again, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. And right when he heard that woe, bam, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet right after that saying went out and a third of mankind was killed. Well, the pattern repeats itself once more this morning. We we see here in verse 14, the second woe is past. The third one is coming quickly. And then right in the verse 15, the third angel Sounds his trumpet. The third woe is just around the corner. Look what it says here. The seventh angel sounded. So it seems like these three woes are always followed by a trumpet that sounds. And they kind of like become like points of demarcation as we travel through these last seven years. And as the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven. And these loud voices, they catch John's attention. And these loud voices in heaven are saying, the kingdoms of this world have become. 
That doesn't mean that they weren't and now they are. Oh, no, no. We're going to discover they've always been. But God is now cashing in on it. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This means the game is all over, team. We've just traveled all the way to the end of the tribulation period. Game is over. All that's left is the award ceremony. You know, you win the game, but you don't get the trophy right then. You got to wait. So we've just fast-forwarded all the way to the end of the movie with the sounding of this seventh trumpet and by these words that were spoken in heaven. Even though the movie's really only about halfway over, maybe a little over halfway over, when trumpet seven sounds and these voices are heard, it's all over. You know, we're going to backtrack as we go through chapter 12 and add all these details into these last three and a half years from chapters 12 to 19. But God sounds the alarm, it's all over. Jesus has declared the victor even before the seven years of tribulation are over, and that makes sense, because he was a victor on the cross. That's where he won. You know, don't get confused here. These words take us to the end, then backtrack with extra detail. Otherwise, you're going, wait a second, how can it be over and we haven't even had the battle of Armageddon yet, or the bowls poured out? For some reason, God wants us here. This is what all of heaven has been waiting for. They've been waiting for this moment right here where the seventh trumpet would sound. Even though our God has always been in charge, we know the one who created all things has always been ruling over all of his creation. But when this seventh trumpet sounded and you add in the past tense of the verbs here for the words have become, this is not he has now become. This ring reads, the kingdoms of this world, past tense, have always been or have always belonged to our Lord and of his Christ. See, this takes us all the way back to Genesis 3, where the Lord God declared that he, the serpent, would bruise the heel of the Messiah. The devil would be able to wound Jesus. But ultimately, the Messiah would crush the serpent's head with a fatal blow. It was already predetermined. Actually, it was predetermined before anything was set in motion, before the foundation of this world was laid. But as we look at Genesis chapter 3, God is already declaring, look, you're going to lose. You're going to get crushed by the Messiah. And please understand, the Lord God saw the devil's defeat even before the first showing of his deceitful ways with Eve. Even before he rebelled against God, God already saw his rebellious ways. He knew what the serpent would do, just like he knows what the sun will do. And as this seventh trumpet sounds, even though the game is over in Genesis 3 with the prophecy of the Messiah crushing the devil's head, John hears these loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become. See, the vo- these voices here are declaring that Jesus has always been the victor. So what's different? Well, God's now going to judge the earth. The devil's time of roaming the earth has come to an end. If you are not a believer at this time, man, you're in big trouble. Because the last grain of the hourglass, you know the hourglass, you know the little thing like this? You know the sand comes down? The last grain has fallen through that little skinny part, and it's all the way headed to the pile. And when it hits the pile, it's all over. If you're not a believer at this point, you got like milliseconds to turn to Jesus, if that's even possible. 
And so God's now going to set up his shop. He's, he has allowed man to rule and reign over his earth for the last 6,000 plus years. He's allowed man to destroy and to mess up. But when this seventh trumpet is sounded, God says enough is enough. It's now time for the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ to happen. And he is going to reign forever and ever. No more presidents, no mullahs, no emperors, no prime ministers, no governors, no earthly position of men. The devil will have no chance of anything. Mankind and the devil and his demons have messed up God's creation long enough with the sounding of this seventh trumpet, and the work that Jesus did on the cross is now going to be fully realized. Even though it was already fully realized. Do you realize that in the New Testament that God sees you glorified? He already sees you glorified. Well, look at yourself. You look glorified? Of course, some of you may be so stuck on yourself. I hope not here, those listening online. Yeah, I am glorified. No. You're in a body that's dying, I'm sorry. But, that, but God sees this already in our glorified bodies. Just like God already sees this already done before we even get there. And God is going to claim the sole authority of the kingdoms of this world, and I believe changes the earth back to what life was like, or back to what the world was like before the fall of mankind. Because, see, when the fall of man happened in Genesis 3 and the flood happened, the earth changed. See, I'm a firm believer that the polar ice caps are going to melt. That's why I want to go rule like the North Pole, because it's got two miles of ice protecting from man messing up what God created. And we're going to see it during that thousand-year reign of Christ. Remember the parable of the wheat and tares that Jesus t tells? He says, you know, the, sower, or the farmer went out to sow his seed, and then the, the enemy came and sowed weeds at night. Hey, what should we do? Should we pull up all the weeds? And remember, Jesus said, no, no, don't do that. Unless you pull up the real wheat, you'll uproot it. Just let them both grow together, and I'm going to separate them at the end of the age. So hold your spot right here. We're at the end of the age here as we read these couple of verses here, as we end up chapter 11. But I want us to go look and see what actually happens at the end of the age. So Matthew chapter 13, please, just a quick detour here. Jesus has told this parable. His disciples come up to him and say, hey, you know, what gives? Explain this to us. So in Matthew chapter 13, verse 37, Jesus gives the explanation. And he said to his disciples, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. That's you and I. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. And you know what? They're present in the church today. They are. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. That's where we are in Revelation 11, team. At least as we look at the end of all things. And so this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like fun. 
But this is what awaits the non-believer. This is what awaits the make-believer, the pretender. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is for us. He who has ears to hear, touch him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, this happens when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet team. And we all know that Jesus gave his all to redeem us. And when the seventh trumpet sounds, it will unleash the final seven bulls of God's judgment on this earth. That, that's going to go bull, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, battle of Armageddon. It's all over. And when that battle of Armageddon is all over, Jesus comes back on a white horse. It says, we are coming with him on horses. I don't know where they're stored. I'm sure they're stored somewhere, but we're coming back. And after that battle, Jesus is going to step down on the Mount of Olives, and the mountain's going to split in two, forming this valley, and he's going to walk down that way through the eastern gate that the Palestinians, the Muslims, have all blocked up with concrete. Man, that thing's going to blow apart like crazy. And he's going to walk in through the eastern gate into the city of Jerusalem, and he'll set up his reign for a thousand years. That's going to happen. Now, this is hard for me to believe, so this is like a Ripley's believe it or not. There's a part of the church today that's a little confused, like the Christian church. They believe that right now we're in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Well, we just read about the parable of the wheat and the tares. If we're in the thousand-year reign of Christ and the angels did a lousy job of gathering up out of the kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and they never did cast them into the lake of fire, they must have gathered up and said, ah, oh, it's catch and release. Because, see, the last I checked, Jesus is not popular in all places on this earth. And certainly, we're not living in a realm of righteousness today. If you think that, man, you're living in a cave somewhere. But there's coming a day that's all going to change. So kind of a simple way to remember or remind yourself as to kind of God's timeline here. God created everything perfect and gave man choice. Man messed it up, and the, and the devil got some lead way from God. Jesus crushed his head at the cross. The devil goes crazy, and God restores back to perfect condition for those who choose the Son. And we live for a thousand years. But you and I, we're going to rule and reign with him. Because we come back with Jesus. There'll be no chance of man messing this up for the next thousand years as we rule and reign with Christ. As the seventh trumpet sounds, these loud voices are declaring that everything has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. I want you to notice here, all of heaven knows what this statement means. The 24 elders who have been holding it in all of this time I told the guys yesterday, I wasn't going to say this, but I think I might say it today. You ever been in the car on a ride, and you see it says rest area 50 miles, and you got to hold it in, and you're like ready to bust? That's what's happening here. These guys have been holding this in, worship-wise. <laughs> They've been waiting for this exact moment in time, and as these voices are spoken in heaven... They fall down on their faces and they bust forth in praise and worship to our God. And look what they say. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, the omnipresent one, the all-seeing the all one, because you've taken your great power and reign, the omnipotent, all-powerful one. The nations were angry. Oh yeah, they're angry at God today. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, the omniscient, the all-knowing one, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen in the parable of the wheat and the tares. So as you look over verse 18 here, we see the nations are angry with God because they don't want a holy God to rule over them. So what does God give them? Wrath. You're angry with me? Well, hey, let me give you what you like. Have some wrath. Now, I, I, I don't want to uh, even think about what that's like. And then the final sentence in verse 18, God is going to destroy those whose mission it was to destroy his earth. And think of everything that presently, actively is destroying God's earth today, team. Morally, physically, just destroying. God says, look, you want to destroy my earth? I'm going to destroy you. I'll give you what you want. And so we really see the simple law of reaping and sowing here. This is what they were sowing. God says, that's what you want. Let me give it to you. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. John sees it. He, it opens up. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. That's where God's throne is. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. Not exactly something that you'd think about when you look into the throne room of God. No doubt God was there ruling on his throne. And John, John observes these various acts of, of God as we move into chapter 12. Now God's word's going to backtrack. Even though at the end, at the end of chapter 11, we go all the, all the way to the end, now we're going to backtrack. We're going to add in some details. Kind of like Genesis chapter 1. God does all of creation. Genesis chapter 2, he backtracks and adds in some detail. That's what's happening here. And so he's going to add in details to what you and I know is the seven-year tribulation period. Verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. Please take notice of that. It's a sign. John didn't see these exact things, but it was a sign. It's not a stop sign that says stop on it. Everybody knows what it is. No, it's a sign. Like in a baseball game. You know, the coach is over there. Don't mean nothing to me. Oh, but to the batters and to the runners, it's a sign. You know, it's not a, hey, you got your hair sticking. You know, my hair always sticks up. That's not what's happening here. It's a sign. So all we have to do is figure out what the sign is by using the word of God. Now a sign, great sign appeared in heaven. Watch what the sign is. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon, under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Wow, that should, let's see, Genesis, exit, nope, Genesis, it's in Genesis. We've seen this, the sun, the moon, and, well, in Genesis we saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Remember Joseph's dream? Joseph has this dream and he tells his dad and his brothers and his mom, hey, oh, by the way, I had this dream and the sun and the moon, his mom and his dad, you're going to bow down to me. And, and the, 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 I saw these 11 stars. That's, you, that's my you brothers here. You guys are going to bow down to me. And what does Jacob, Joseph's dad do? He rebukes him for it because that was unheard of in that culture. No patriarch of the family would ever bow down to his child. But we know that's exactly what happened because they, the brothers sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph becomes the second leading ruler in Egypt and they're out of food up in Israel. So they come down and they bow down before Joseph. So it's real easy if we use our Bibles at who this is here. 
This is Israel. Sun and the moon and not 11 stars, it's 12 stars because Joseph's added in here now. For further proof that this is Israel, religious systems are feminine when we travel through God's word, right? You and I are called the bride of Christ. That's feminine. The great harlot of false religion Babylon, we'll see that in chapters 18 and 19. And here with Israel as a woman clothed with the sun, it's a sign, but, and there's a lot of signs and symbolisms in the book of Revelation, but we use the rest of the Bible to determine what those are. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars, then being with child. So there's another sign here. Who's the child here? It starts with the J, ends with an S. One person knew and one person copied. I'll give you another clue. J.S. Christmas baby. Go. Wow, you guys are sharp this morning. Because, see, the, Jesus, the Messiah, comes through who? Israel. Then being with child. Who's the, who, who's the one with child? Israel. And the woman cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, there are those who like to say that this is the church. God's done with Israel. This is the church here. And without going into a lot of detail, let me make this real simple. What's one of the names that the church is referred to in the New Testament that wouldn't have babies? What is she referred to as? Yeah, a bride, but then that means she could have babies. She's referred to as the chaste virgin. We see it in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve. 12. For I have betrothed you to one husband, Paul says, as he writes to the church in Corinth, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So do you kind of see a conflict or a problem for those who say this description here is the church that's having a baby? Because see, if the bride of Christ is pregnant, that just seems really weird to me. I mean, we got a problem here, Houston. You can't have the church giving birth to Jesus. Ah, but the, Jew, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people giving birth to Jesus, oh, well, that makes sense. The Roman Catholics would like you to believe this is Mary here. Mary's here and she's giving birth to her son. And they've got art pictures to prove so. But as we travel down through this chapter and through the rest of this book, you're going to find out, no, sounds good, but it doesn't work. Verse 3, sign number 3. Sign number 1 was what? Starts with an I. Say it loud like you mean it. Israel. What was sign number 2? Jesus. Sign number 3. Here's what's so sad about this. You're going to get this one without me even telling you. So we're going to know what the evil, but we're going to miss the two good ones. Look what it says. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Who's this? Yeah. <laughs> it's the devil. The dragon has always been the symbol of Satan. If you fast forward to verse 9, you will find, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So there can be no disputing who this sign is. And the dragon image, though, represents his nature and character as a destroyer, because that's all he is. Now, does he look like a dragon? Yes or no? It's not a trick question. Yeah, of course he could if he wanted to, probably, maybe. No, he doesn't look like a dragon. He doesn't look like a dragon any more than Jacob and his wife look like the sun and the moon. 
and Joseph's brothers look like stars. They're signs, remember? It's important we understand that. Please notice the devil has seven heads and ten horns. Horns speaking of power in the scriptures symbolically. The seven heads we find in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, and again in verse 24 of Daniel 7. The ten horns make up ten kings. And these ten kings will make up the last kingdom before Jesus come back, comes back and sets up his kingdom. And they'll probably come out of the old Roman Empire, maybe out of the, the EU, the European Union, or, so, or maybe something similar that we aren't even aware of. And these ten kings will give their power over to the Antichrist who is a pawn in the devil's court. The seven heads could speak of the completeness of wisdom that the devil's going to use as he comes to deceive the people with supernatural, demonic wisdom and selling people his lies. Because think about it. When the church is raptured out of here, the devil's going to easily come on the scene and he's going to kind of declare himself to the world as the leading religious figure. And so that's why it may be these seven diadems speak of some royal or regal authority, but it's all counterfeit. Verse 4, another sign. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. When you read that, you're going, man, the devil took out a third of the angels and made them be bad. No, because it's a sign. Because we already, look, first of all, okay, um, I hate to like maybe burst your bubble, but the devil doesn't have red spandex. He doesn't have a funky tail and doesn't have a pitchfork with little horns coming out of his head. So when it says here, his tail drew a third of the stars, he doesn't have a tail. It's a sign. But when the devil rebelled against God, he was perfect before he rebelled. And when he rebelled against God, one-third of the perfect angels that God had given free choice to, they joined him in his rebellion. The devil didn't force them. No, they had a choice to rebel, and they chose to. And it's important to note that God did not create these angels that choose to rebel as evil creatures. No, he didn't create them that way. He created them and crafted them in wonder and in beauty. And he gave them the ability to have one choice, not two. They only get one. You and I, we get like choice three, choice four, choice five billion. But God created them beautifully and majestically. But when they chose to rebel, when they chose to say, hey, God, we want to be in charge here, they became evil. I don't know how that happened, but it's not because God made them that way. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And we know why the dragon acted this way. He needs to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. The cross is the only place where our sins could be atoned of, team. The cross is where the head of the devil is crushed. The cross screams so loud that the devil, you're a loser, and Jesus... It's a winner. So he has to do everything he can to try and stop this from taking place. But this is not the first place the devil strikes. I think Genesis 3 was the first place he struck. And then he went, him and his angels went down and started cohabitating with angels to where God destroyed the whole earth. I think he was trying to strike out and get rid of the birth of the Messiah. The devil's always been trying to get rid of the, de the, get rid of the nation of Israel. Look at Esther. 
Haman is the devil's puppet seeking to wipe out all of the Jews in the book of Esther. Remember Esther, Mordecai, evil Haman? She bore a male child. It's already taken place. Who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's future. Because right now you and I have choice. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And that's already taken place as well. So please observe the facts here. A male child, not a female. Who we know is Jesus Christ. His father was not a black woman. I'm sorry if you read The Shack and that's what you think. You know, that's just like crazy nonsense wrong. He will rule all nations with a rod of iron. We see that in numerous places. So I'll give you two, and you can cross-reference that if you like, where, where the Bible talks about the Lord ruling with a rod of iron. The first one is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord God Almighty has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Jesus comes back and we come back with him and rule and reign, the people that are dwelling on the earth at that time, they're going to be ruled over by a rod of iron. I don't know really what that means, other than they can't sin. I don't know if we get to think what they're thinking and we got to go, hey, don't think that way. How, I don't know how it all plays out. But during that thousand years, people are going to be forced to live righteously. So it's going to be way different than it is today. And then at the end of the thousand years, the devil's let loose to deceive the nations. And my, my guess would be most of those people rebel against God and go seek to take on God. And that battle's over before it even begins. And then God sets up his new kingdom. We, we will see that right at the end of chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, this is what it reads like as Jesus comes back. It says, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the final act of the seven-year tribulation on this earth as Jesus sets up his rule. In the meanwhile, though, Jesus is caught up to the throne. John sees all of this. And then the woman, who we know as Israel, fled into the wilderness. Kind of hard for that to be Mary, isn't it? You know, she's been dead for 2,000 plus years. So Israel flees into the wilderness because the dragon is seeking to wipe them out. Okay, so here I'm going to, you know, if you're a Petra fan, you might be a little shocked. There's a place where on Christian tours today, they take you to the rock Petra because this is where the Jews are going to flee to. Uh, I don't know about that. I know that's where they make merchandise off of Christians. But look, this says she flees to a place prepared by God, not Christians. Now, God could use Christians, that's true. But this says she has a place there prepared by God. Please observe who prepared the place. That they, who's the they? I don't know who they, I don't know who the they is here that they should feed her, the remnant of Israel, 1,260 days. Okay, so just to backtrack, the, devil, the Antichrist helps the Jews get their temple built. Around three and a half years, the abomination of desolation takes place, which is the devil going into the temple, declaring he's God. The Jews realize they've been suckered. They all take off running. Jesus writes about that. 
And so they go out running and hide. And this place prepared by God, this place that they're going to feed her, the nation, the remnant of Israel for three and a half years. God's going to take care of his people, the Jews. Now, Christians believe this place that they flee to is the rock city Petra. And it could be. I've taught that before. Christians go there and buy Bibles and put them in the caves so that way when the, the Jews flee to there, they'll have Hebrew scriptures to read. New Testament Hebrew scriptures. David Guzik in his commentary writes, and I quote, reportedly, it doesn't mean he's heard it or seen it, he just heard somebody say it. Christian businessmen have stocked Petra with food and evangelistic tracts written in Hebrew. Huh. But is it the right spot? Keep in mind, Petra is 167 kilometers due south and a little east of the Dead Sea. Jerusalem here, Dead Sea here, 167 miles down and a little bit over. That's a long ways to flee when you're running from the Antichrist. 167 kilometers. Good thing they have cars. Man, you never get there on a donkey. The Antichrist is coming after them because they're saying, the Jews are saying, look, we don't, no, you're a fraud. We don't want you to reign over us. So he's, gonna, he, he's coming after them, seeking to destroy them. And Petra is 167 kilometers, just remember that, 167 kilometers due south. If you, I, I, I uh, Googled it on MapQuest, and, you know, you got to go up here, go across, and go down across this border. It was, it was like 400 kilometers, but just as a crow flies, 167 kilometers. That's a long way. Is that really the right place? I don't know. That's where they run the buses. I've been there. You know, the buses always seem to go where it's convenient to have a bus stop. Yeah, but biblically, look, this is the wrong spot. Look, it, no, it couldn't have been here. It had to have been. Yeah, but the buses can get there easy. So what's right? I don't know. Let me give you some controversy. Isaiah chapter 16. Let's look it up. You're going to have to go do your own time in it, but I'm going to point a couple things out. You know, if you go to Israel today and you go into the dome of the pagan rock, if you pay money to go into that, you're funding Palestinian terrorism. Because that money goes right to the Palestinians. It's their thing. And I can't help but think how much money funds to the Arab movement in Jordan, even though Jordan's kind of friendly to Israel, but they won't let Israelis in through their border, at least not openly. Okay, Isaiah chapter 16, verse 1. Send the lamb. Now, that's not Jesus. That's like, bah, a lamb, food. Send your goods. See, David, here's the backstory on this, this thing. David had originally captured Moab and Edom. That was around 1,000 B.C. And, they, and then Moab and Edom paid Solomon tribute as well. So we're still around, you know, 900-something B.C. But over time, Moab and Edom rebelled and said, we're not paying you anymore. So the prophet, and the prophet Isaiah is around 700, if, I don't get my, if, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere, somewhere around 700 B.C. And the prophet Isaiah is writing saying, hey, look, you guys got to start paying tribute again. And that, he's calling Edom and Moab to start paying again. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. The, the, the ruler of the land would be the king of the southern kingdom of Israel. 
You guys, Moab and Edom, you need to start paying from Selah. That, and when you look, that's a city in Edom that's south of the Dead Sea. That could possibly be Petra. Hey, you guys need to start sending food here. So 167 kilometers south of the Dead Sea and a little bit to the east. Hey, you guys need to start sending food up to the king of Israel. From Selah to the wilderness to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Aaron. This, this description here is the middle, middle of the Dead Sea, but it's not south, it's east of the Dead Sea. Now, please keep in mind that this place that Isaiah writes of is 187 kilometers away from Petra. So it's a lot closer to Israel. Isaiah radically changes gears here and writes in the future, I believe, take counsel, Moab. Not Edom. Edom's way down at Petra when you look at the old maps. Take counsel, Moab. Execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. That's to Moab, not Edom. Hide the outcast. The Jews are the outcast here. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. That's the Jews. Verse 4. Let my outcast dwell with you Oh, Moab. Now, Moab is present-day Jordan as well. But when you look on the maps and not just take someone's word for it, you see Moab's borders only went a little south of the Dead Sea and way east. And all the maps I, I looked at would not include present-day tourist trap Petra. And that's where the Edomites dwell. But this says, be a shelter, Moab, to them, the Israelites, from the face of the spoiler. Possibly the Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end. Possibly speaking of the last three and a half days of this tribulation period. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. So as Isaiah writes here, it is Edom and Moab start paying tribute again and ends with Moab hide God's people. Not Edom, where Petra is, but Moab. Now, if this is the real place the Jews will flee to where God has prepared a place for them, then Christians have been paying the Arabs for the wrong tour. Now, please, don't believe me. It's a future event, so no one can be certain. But we not, might not want to cast all of our eggs into the one, pe into the one basket, Petra, that's 167 kilometers south and east of the Dead Sea. So check it out, Team Acts 17.11. You might want to just do a little research here. Go read some commentators. There's some old guys, like old, dead, 1500, 1600. You can read new guys too. And yet we still continue to go to Petra. It, it, it baffles me. Verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael. That would be Michael the archangel. You, you realize the Jehovah Witnesses say that this Michael is Jesus? But if they would read their Bibles, they would discover that Michael the archangel said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. Oops. 
<laughs> Numerous times in the scriptures, we find that Jesus rebuked Satan, but here Michael needed to use Jesus' name to rebuke the devil. Oops. See, if they would just use their Bible, they'd find out that they're being deceived. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, please notice, where does this battle take place? Where does it say? In heaven. Where are we going to be at this point in time? In heaven. Okay, Lord, please. I'm not asking for much, but I would love to see this battle take place. Where the good angels take on the bad angels. We're going to be in our glorified bodies, man. That's going to be epic. The thing to keep in mind here, team, is a day is coming soon when the devil will no longer be able to approach God and accuse us before him. Today, he has very limited access. Remember Job? Hey, Job, where you been? I've been walking to and fro. But there's coming a day when he will lose and literally be kicked out of heaven and then he's going to be cast into a pit for a thousand years. So the great dragon was cast out, verse 9. Today he's not cast out. Today he's defeated, been defeated at the cross, but he hasn't been cast out. So the great dragon was cast out. It's going to happen somewhere around the middle part of the tribulation period. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. That is his job, wives, to deceive you. Husbands, students, Parents, moms and dads, children. This is the devil's job to deceive. The vicious, accusing, adversarial deceiver who loves to deceive and stir up strife in families. He wants to deceive you, wives, and get you thinking your husband is a big fat jerk. And you know what? Maybe we are, but just you thinking that makes you worse than what the big fat jerk is because you and I are called to love. And guys, these fallen angels want to get you thinking, your wife doesn't respect you or honor you, and so somehow you have some right to do something. Hey, listen, that may or may not be true, but you have no right. You lost them all at the cross. The only right you have is to love and to forgive. And you young people, the devil tries to get you going sideways thinking life's all about you, and you know what? He's doing a really good job today. Yeah, don't, yeah ignore them. They don't know anything. Life's all about me. Please underline this. Who deceives the whole world? That's all he is. That's all he knows. If I was to ever think that my unloving, judgmental, critical thoughts or comments, no matter how true I think they are, if I ever think those are acceptable, man, I am so deceived, I can't even see straight. Our Father in heaven is never unloving or judgmental or critical when he deals with us. So why do I think that that should be an acceptable behavior for me today? It's not. The only way I could think that is if I was deceived, I didn't even know it. And that's, why, well, that's what deception is. You don't know it. So if I was to ever think that way, I have got to recognize I'm, I, I'm deceived. I've got to repent. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And at this moment in time, hell on this earth is going to take on a whole new meaning. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren. That's the devil and the fallen angels job church. That's all they know and do, accuse. 
And when you find yourself there, please recognize you're taking the enemy's bait. We don't want to fall into his trap here. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So no, no, no matter how crazy earth is, when he gets kicked out of heaven, oh man, crazy is going to take on super new meanings. I mean, this wasn't still as his job, church, till he's locked up. This is all the devil and his demonic friends know is to accuse others and then lie about it. We need to know that, team. He accuses and he lies. Now, seeing that the accuser has been cast down, is there any hope for these earth dwellers, for these people living on the earth at this time? Not their own strength. And so God gives them a three-step plan. And listen, this is what I want us to understand here. Look up here. If God gives these guys a three-step plan, when the devil's been kicked out of heaven and is, driving the, and is going totally insane on this earth, and he gives them a three-step plan on how to survive, then team, this is for us today. You want to survive today and grow as a Christian? This is it. It's right here. It's not your own strength. It's God's plan. Look here, look at what it is here. And they overcame him. Who's the him? The devil. The devil that's been kicked out of heaven, that's running all over the world, world now because he knows his time is short. We're going to see that. And he's going crazy. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. I hope you can see how we can obtain victory after victory today, just like they will. Three key ingredients for a successful walk today, team. We are able to have victory here, team, and none of it requires the buying of a book or months and years of counseling. You don't have to go learn some new technique or some formula. The devil's accusations mean nothing against us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That means, as a believer today, I've, I can have a clear conscience before God. Whether I did something before Christ or did something as a believer. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. I can have a clear mind over my past failures, men and women. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. Each day you and I awake, we can have a clear conscience, a clear mind. Why? Because everything of yesterday has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. That's biblical fact. Now, if you need to confess something to God, do that. But it's already been washed away. But you've got to own this, team. You have to believe this great truth from deep down within your gut. To where, where when your mind or the enemy tries to shoot something at you, trying to get you to think about something or what you did, you got to go, wait a second, wait a second. I, I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus. And he'll take off. But you have to believe it and you have to own it. you got to live this. If you go settle in on, oh, yeah, I failed over here. Man, he, he's leading you somewhere. you got to own these things got to use these things. You have to look at God's word here just like in every other place in our Bibles and declare, I own this because God has spoken this to me. It's living, it's active, it cut into my heart. By faith, all of us must take this in and allow the living word to become a part of us as it grows in us. His blood washes away all of my sin as far as the east is from the west. 
Jesus has already paid the penalty that our sin required. Well, you know, you just need to forgive yourself. That's unbiblical. That's psychological. What's there to forgive when Jesus' blood has washed it all away? Now you're asking me to do something that's humanly not even possible. Well, you need to forgive yourself. What? He's already forgiven me. He's already washed me. Jesus paid it all. By his blood, we're clean. Past, present, and future sin. He's not going to get re-sacrificed tomorrow when I blow it. No, he's already forgiven me of all my sin. That whoever shall believe in him shall not perish. You and I are white as snow. Why? Well, because his blood washes us. The punishment and penalty our sin deserved, Jesus took it and paid it all. Jesus' victory over death and resurrection, over the, uh, death over sin and the resurrection, becomes our victory the moment we turn to and say yes to Jesus. Yes, yes, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I believe. I believe you died for me. And I believe you rose again from the dead. Lord, come into my heart and be my Lord, be my Savior. And that moment that transaction takes place in your life, the blood of Jesus covered over all your sin, past, present, future. You don't have to do something special when you sin today. No, you got to run to the cross. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy in our time of need. That's what, God, that's what awaits you and I as we run to the cross. Why? Because the blood of Jesus. They overcame the crazy lunatic maniac devil in the last three and a half years of crazy world during the tribulation period by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus works today as a continual demonstration of God's love to you and me. The blood of Jesus causes us to love much as we realize how much we've been forgiven because the person that has been forgiven much by the blood of Jesus loves much. The, the blood of Jesus brings awareness of how costly sin is. You know, we sing that song, I'll never know how much it costs. See my sin upon that cross? Yeah, because Jesus paid it all. I'll never know. The blood of Jesus moves us away from sin. The blood of Jesus brings us victory in every spiritual battle we will ever face. The, the blood of Jesus is our prosecutor before the Father as you and I walk with him. The devil is the accuser accusing, yet our prosecutor, who is Jesus, declares as guilty as charged as the accuser accuses, but then he declares, but my blood covers over them, Father. And the Father declares, paid in full, innocent. All our victories are based on the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. If you add something to that, you weaken the power. If you take away from the blood of Jesus, you weaken its, the power of the blood. So when you hear those evil thoughts, listen, don't allow yourself to be ripped off. Apply the blood team, run to the cross. When you think those thoughts, don't, you know, don't, just, just run to the cross. They overcame him. And everything he represents by the, word of, by the blood of the Lamb, and look what the second one is, by the word of our testimony. They overcame the raving lunatic devil in the last three, hundred, three and a half years before Jesus come back, comes back and sets up shop. They overcame the devil by remembering the work of God in their lives. 
Use it, team. Wear it out. It's yours to use. It's important that people know our testimony. Like, what's the testimony? Well, like how you gave your life to Jesus Christ. That's a testimony. Another testimony is how Jesus is working in your life today. The devil is defeated as you use your story, church. Make him work harder. You gotta, so when we go outside those doors, the service isn't over in here. No, it's just starting. As we get to speak about spiritual things. We, we get to give our testimony about how Jesus worked. I guarantee you, if you go talk to Barry right now, he has a testimony. He got it. You know when you get a new knee? Cut it off here, cut it off here, slap a piece on there, throw a little skin on it. Boom, here we go. How come you're not in pain? He held up his Bible. Because God's grace is sufficient for him. You got to own it. You got to live these things. Testimony of salvation yesterday, testimony of what Jesus is doing today is going to propel you down the road of life. The third key to victorious living is right here. And they did not agape love their, lo their lives to the death. That's choice. A lot of self-love going on today in these last days. Bible predicts that. In the last days, men will be loving themselves, loving the money. They'll just be infatuated with themselves. And yet this says, do not agape, love your life to the death. When you own this, the devil has nothing on you anymore, team. When to be absent from this body means you're present with the Lord in every day in your life because your life, you're not, you're not in love with yourself anymore. When this truth anchors your soul, the devil loses all angles against you, team. And obviously when you do not love your lives to the death, you're never going to worry about anything. Why? Because my life's nothing. It's been bought at a price. Never going to worry, never going to be concerned. Speculation, imagination, absent. Why? Well, because life ain't about you anymore. And I see myself present with the Lord if you take my life. So take my life. I know exactly where I'm going to go. When you're no longer just in love with yourself, the devil has nothing on you. When you have no concern for you, when you know the Lord will take care of you until it's your day to go home, when you know your life is not yours anymore, when you know you're bought at a price, when you know that your life is in Jesus' hands, once you own this and this godly attitude becomes a part of you, that thought lived out in your life defeats the devil, the world, and your flesh every single time, team. These are great principles to live by here. But, but if that, all they are is principles, they're probably not going to work. We've got to own these things. Victorious believers are more interested in living for God and serving God than they are living for self in a self-centered life. Team, we've got to own the application here from deep within our hearts. Because this is how believers during the tribulation period will overcome the devil when he's kicked out of heaven. And if it works for them because God's telling them this is what you need to do, because this is what they did, then it's going to work for us. Today is restrained crazy. And if these three things will work for them when the devil grows crazy, then make no mistake about it, these instructions for God, from God will work for you today. They're right here. Blood of the Lamb, word of the testimony, and not in love with themselves. 
you and I, we got to own this. If we want to grow, we've got to allow this word to get into our heart, find that good soil, and let God take care of the rest. We just have to believe that. Lord, I believe this. Lord, I don't know how you could do this in me, but Lord, I believe that. That's all God's looking for. Remember in Romans chapter 7 or 14, um, Paul's going, I'm not doing the things I should be doing, and I'm doing the things I shouldn't be doing. You know the passage? A lot of times people stop there. You've got to go to the end of the book, end of the chapter. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then it says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. See, Paul knew he could never do it in himself, but he knew Jesus could. It's the same way here. You have to believe this, own this, and say, Lord, I, okay, and let God do what he wants to do in our lives. Father, we're so thankful for all that you want to do in us and through us.